This show is a screwball comedy with blue humor, adult situations, and some cussing. For subject matter and show notes, visit patterspod.com. The following events are fake. The story, however, is real. And, and can't you just picture tiny little Luke Pettersby nestling into bed, no doubt sneaking a book under the covers with a flashlight? Mm. Head full of dreams. <laughs> yeah, dreams you would one day share with us. I'm standing in the childhood bedroom of the man who ruined my life, lying through my teeth about my feelings toward Luke Pattersby, to his biggest fan. My name is Lydia Grauman, and I am the head curator of the Luke Pattersby Museum in Norman, Maine. And I am also the president of the Luke Pattersby Fan Club. And you call yourself the Patties. Yes, 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 we do. Proudly so, I might add. Uh, we volunteer here to keep the lights on and um, to share our love for Mr. P, as we, as we call him. And uh, we also have uh, bake sales where we share our world-famous petty cakes. Okay, that's enough. Lydia phoned our tip line with info about a previously unreported woman that Pattersby left dinner with the very last night he was ever seen. The woman's name was Fiona Caruso. And before Lydia took charge, Fiona, I learn, was the fan club president. That woman was, how, how would you say it, um, ambitious. And that's not just me being rude, that's the truth. I never thought she really enjoyed Mr. P's books, like not, not like me or like the other gals. Um, it always seemed like she was after something else, you know? Wow, Lydia, that is so interesting. I literally got goosebumps. I didn't. I also didn't fly cross-country on airline miles I was otherwise saving for a big me trip to hear some busybody talk smack on her quilting circle. No, I'm in Luke Pattersby's hometown, in his home bedroom, because Lydia tells me she found a bunch of Fiona Caruso's old stuff when she was cleaning up the archives. Photographs, writings, knickknacks, keepsakes, clues, left behind by the last woman seen with Luke Pattersby. This is Finding Pattersby, a thriller in ten parts. Chapter 2, The Fan Club President. and her house of curiosities in a bit. But first, a little housekeeping. I am not a liar. I'm not. I see what you're saying about me on internet and it's not cool. It's childish and false AF. But on a more exciting note, those of you who appreciate me and want to see me thrive, well, stick around to the end of this episode because boy, do I got a treat for you. A big career announcement. See, when I was in the sky, I missed a call from my estranged talent agent and manager, Jay Jordan St. Avalon. He handles, well, 
he handled my writing career, and I haven't heard from him in several years. He's really cool, and I consider him family. If family took 42% of my paychecks and refused to talk to me for large swaths of the year. But yeah, I never hear from the guy, which I don't hold against him. Life gets in the way. Jordan can't return my calls even if he is active on internet and doesn't fave my funny comments. Point being, when I saw his missed call, well, not to be a premature chicken counter, but I got a feeling the buzz around me doing this investigation has made JJ reevaluate my value as his client. And he probably wants to talk career strategy. 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 Um, so stay tuned and don't fast forward to the end. Don't. Okay, back to the Eastern Seaboard. Norman, Maine is the kind of small town you think only exists in the movies about the good old days. Friendly postmen, gazebos as far as the eye can see, swimming holes, local parades down Main Street to beat the band, stringent zoning laws, closed economy with no plan B. If you've read Luke Pattersby's biography, you know how much he romanticizes this slice of Americana, and it ain't hard to see why. Who doesn't love warm memories of yesteryear? The folks here seem happily frozen in time, like big mosquitoes trapped in candy-striped amber. From the trolley driver with a snow-white mustache, to the ice cream salesman over at Donnie's Creamery, also with a snow-white mustache, who gave me a look when he saw my last name was Cervantes and said, Now there's a name. Honestly, what the hell is that supposed to mean? But one wonders... If someone has everything they want forever, doesn't that mean somewhere out there, someone else has to have nothing forever? And what happened to make our missing author trade this simple life of catching bullfrogs by a lazy river for the fast-paced world of big money book deals? These were the things on my mind as I spent the afternoon with Lydia the Superfan worshipping at the Temple of Pattersby. Lydia, this is amazing. You named all 90 ants in this ant farm? Yep, after Pattersby characters. That's uh, London Halcombe. And, and this little guy, that is Aiden Marlborough, because he kind of looks like him. And this plump fellow is uh, Kiefer Garland. From the Hadrian, the Hadrian Parallel. Parallel. Yeah. <laughs> I've been to my fair share of museums, and I'll say I am an absolute nut for history, both past and otherwise. Love it. And I love everything about the museum experience. The brochures, the gift shops, the staff of usually old people who I choose to pretend are ghosts wandering the rooms untethered in the realm of the living. In another life, I could see myself as a sort of folksy public television destination guide. A Rick Steves or Huel Hauser, God rest his golden soul. Doing travelogues, checking out local landmarks, shining a light on human interest stories about the little people, like Lydia, and dedicating a portion of my airtime to intimidating Garrison Keillor. Keep that mole man in his hole. Anywho, if I'm being honest, Lydia's museum feels like a work in progress. And I say that, one, out of love, and two, because I'm certain I can hear a man a few rooms over watching a Liam Neeson film. I can tell you I don't have one. But what I do have are a particular set of skills. I hate to say it, but 
This marks the beginning of my uneasiness here, especially after I asked Lydia about the dogs barking over the Liam Neeson film and subsequent shouting. Well, okay, you got me. The actual Pattersby home is across town. A dental practice owns it now. Terrible use of the space. So I thought, what, what the heck? I'll turn my house into Luke's house. So you also live in this museum? Yeah, I live in this museum. Was that allowed? Lydia goes on to tell me she's run into trouble with the city, claiming she's abusing the non-profit status of her live-in museum for tax purposes. There's also some concern over how she was so accurately able to recreate Pattersby's childhood bedroom. At one point, the man watching the Liam Neeson movie walks by us without uttering a word, I think to make himself a sandwich. When our conversation returns to Lydia's legal affairs, I tell her that as long as she serves her famous snickerdoodle cookies to the judge, she's got nothing to worry about. And with that, our Scofflaw host happily continues our tour of the museum slash home she shares with her adult stepson, Jeremy. Each space made into giant dioramas depicting key moments from the writer's life. Though I'll admit the dead-eyed mannequins she's involved in each setting add a real fever dream vibe. Like we're starting a Kodachrome acid trip sequence in a film from the 70s when New Hollywood knew just how to get under the skin of our post-Vietnam American psyche. And here he is, the Thomas Edison of words. Typing away. Well, that's a very lifelike mannequin. Nailed the eyebrows. She shows me a fake Pattersby from his college days in a library, hard at work. Lydia, that looks like real human hair. It is. One of the petties cleans up at the hospital. This way. Lydia has a way about her. Decisive, plucky. I think I like her. Even if my fight or flight response has started tingling a little, still... I follow her down a darkened hallway with peeling wallpaper. Very Silence of the Lambs. And the result of a plumbing repair gone awry by her adult stepson, Jeremy. I get the sense she's gone from being intimidated by me to showing a kind of small town pride. A chuffed chance to hot dog in front of a city slicker like myself. Rub my nose in it. Admittedly, it's around this moment I also experience my first jump scare of the day as we reach a landing at the end of the hall with a window and I notice just outside down below in the yard doing laundry for some reason is what I can only assume is a pair of patties. I can't say how long they'd been there or how long they'd been watching me but I feel their eyes. One holds up a jar with what looks like black caterpillars inside. It's hard to tell. The sunlight is shining directly onto and through the jar. And for a moment, it looks like one of the patties, uh, her shoulders hunched, reddish hair, a bowl cut. It feels like she's holding light. And it's mesmerizing in a dark way, even if there's plenty of daylight. The patty shakes the jar, and it's then I see those aren't caterpillars, but rather eyebrows? Lydia, for her part, 
just titters and moves on. <laughs> when I look again outside, the women are gone. Uh... A little dark down here, Lydia. How far down these steps go? Hold the hill, you'll be fine. Lydia's got me on a rickety set of stairs, headed to the next stop in her beautiful, dark, twisted fantasy. <laughs> had to Patty take a spill down these ones. <laughs> Wasn't pretty. <laughs> Almost had the car splatty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you ever seen a collarbone? I hadn't, and I wanted to keep things that way. I love my skeleton exactly where it is, nice and flesh-bound. <sighs> Anywho, now's probably a good time to tell you what we do already know about Fiona Caruso. Fiona Telly Caruso was the youngest of five children, born in a farmhouse somewhere in Idaho. But to see a photo of her in the 1990s, Fiona's a bit more Demi Moore than Little Debbie. Wet look hair, bright red lipstick, slick woman's pantsuit. Yeah, she kind of rocks. To hear Lydia tell it, as a teenager, Fiona ran away from home to insinuate herself in the fast-paced publishing world of 1990s Seattle. What happened on her trip from wholesome to whole enchilada, extra olives, is anyone's guess. But somewhere in there, she crossed paths with Lydia and leapfrogged her way into the role of fan club president. Lydia says Fiona's thirst for fame eventually got the better of her when she supposedly wrecked a speedboat high on designer drugs at Hugo Kritz's birthday party, author of Timestamp, a divisive outing which posited an alternate universe wherein Mary Todd Lincoln, I'm getting off track here. The point is, if all this is true, then why was she with Luke Pattersby the night he disappeared? What's your head? What? Ow! <laughs> they never listen. From the temperature and stillness of the air, I can feel we're well below the Earth's surface. All I know is that it's dark and I can't see a thing. Then, with a quick tug, Lydia's yanked up some light from a bulb, revealing a setting that's as impressive as it is alarming. Be careful, yeah, over here. And ta-da! Oh, look at that. Surprise! Wow, look at that. So we're in a basement, which Lydia has converted to a kind of boudoir meets home office scene. With, you know, more mannequins. And I don't mind saying I feel a real pressure to understand it right. Okay, so that mannequin is Luke Pattersby. Yep. Okay, I'll paint you a picture. There's two mannequins. One is Pattersby in his signature mop of curls and white t-shirt and tweed vest combo popularized during his sophomore hit, The Toy Chest, that helped put him on the map. He's typing at a typewriter, and in an interpretive flourish, Lydia has fashioned the pages flying out of the typewriter to sort of curl into midair. Several pages are doing this. Free-floating, suspended, in a cycle like different stages in the page's journey. They soar from the machine, using fishing line and lacquer to shape the paper in a variety of bends and twists until, at one point, the pages start slowly morphing into something else. Into 
white birds, doves. These doves look very real, and knowing Lydia probably are. But it's not their verisimilitude that catches my attention, but rather where these pages turn birds and their journey. See, the dummy Pattersby stares into a floor-length mirror. The glass from the mirror is gone and replaced with see-through bluish cellophane. And on the other side of the looking glass, staring back, is another mannequin. This one decidedly hunkier. I think the mirror mannequin is supposed to be like a fantasy reflection. It's shirtless, with abs crudely drawn on in brown marker, and if I didn't know better, I'd say potter's clay had been added to bulk up the shoulders and pecs. Its thumb has been broken and re-glued in order to hitch suggestively in the figure's skin-tight jeans. Most surprisingly, the hunky mannequin's mouth is wide open, receiving the aforementioned typewriter pages turned doves who appear to fly through the looking glass. The cellophane kind of warped around them. Then into and inside the fantasy mannequin's face. The jaw's been broken to eat the bird and absorb Pattersby's own typewritten ideas. In my most generous interpretation, I'd say this was one of his book characters receiving some kind of life force from the author himself. And then for some reason, the whole thing's covered in police tape. To say I'm stunned into silence would be an understatement. This is clearly the work of a delicate mind. So you see the side, uh, is, that's Mr. P. And the reflection, the staring back, is his most famous creation, his character, Tio Sultan. Mm. The police tape uh, gives the whole thing a thriller-type feeling, in my opinion. Like you're, you're seeing something you shouldn't. Hearing Lydia skip past the most challenging details of what we've just seen to casually echo the lie about who created Theo Sultan is a real gut check. One I better get used to. Not everyone's going to be thrilled about having to reevaluate their relationship with an author they basically consider to be God in terms of mass market paperbacks. Gosh, don't you just love Theo Sultan? Now there's a character. The mind that came up with a hero like him, what a gift. Do you ever wish you could come up with uh, something like that, Mr. Cervantes? I, yes. It takes a bit longer for me to answer. My middling enthusiasm seems to arouse suspicion in Lydia. Like maybe she was testing me. What if she's savvier than she's letting on? What if this country mouse act by her and her ilk are just that, an act? to con out-of-towners. I spot some blood on the police tape and wonder if one of the patties got this from an actual crime scene. I reflexively check my phone for a signal and am discouraged to find I ain't got one. And like she's reading my mind, Lydia picks up on this discomfort. Oh, don't be a worry, Bart. You big city types are always so worried. Don't worry. And don't ask questions, so many questions. Gives me a headache. And for headaches, we drink our medicine. Lydia, is that wood cleaner? Archives are this way. You're joking. So this way apparently is a three-foot iron door with a padlock built into a dirt wall that looks like it's from the colonial era. Lydia tells me it's a root cellar from before, and the temperature and darkness are perfect for preserving the club's old documents and photos. 
Which makes sense. It does. It does. So, why can't I bring myself to crawl in there? What? Are you afraid of dirtying up those nice slacks? Or that'll dep you over the head with this hammer? Chain you up down here? And that'll be that? <laughs> no. Wait, wait, where'd she get that hammer? I'm losing it. Get a grip. This ain't a Stephen King story. It's a me story. From real life. I mean, if I'm gonna walk in the footsteps of such public broadcasting greats as Huel Hauser, then I gotta start trusting people. That's what Huel did. And he never got taken captive. Or if he did, he clearly escaped. Well, then again, he was a Marine. At the end of the day, I'm a people pleaser. I do hate to cause a scene. Once while applying to be on a game show, I was pressured into saying I was afraid of clowns, when that couldn't be further from the truth. I love clowns. They're silly and fun. <laughs> so, in true doormat fashion, I hunched through the dirt tunnel, ignoring all thoughts about whether you could hear screams from down here or if the tiny grooves all around me are from fingernails. And get to crawling. Well, as you can hear, I'm alive. And if I'm not, then, well, I guess I'm a ghost. And while my mouth still works, I find my heart sinking because the archives I find are a little concerning for a variety of reasons. Chief among them being how they're mainly just a pile of garbage bags heaped up in a blue plastic kiddie pool. The Dewey Decimal System, this is not. Here we are. Trinity College Library. D wait, did I hear that right? A pithy deadpan reference to the famed academic book collection from Lydia? Something's up, and not in a good way. She delivers the sarcastic quip with her back still turned to me. My eyes are still adjusting to the room's red lighting. I assume it's that way to help preserve the documents, but for now it just makes everything feel off-kilter and underworld-ish. I try to break the tension. Trinity College Library is such a good book place. The Irish just get it, you know? Lydia ignores my pretty good small talk and continues facing away from me as I stand to my feet. Her command of the room renders me a mere afterthought, something irrelevant to whatever she's thinking. My heart rate instinctively rises as I notice mixed in among the kiddie pool bags slithering between them are a bunch of snakes knots of them writhing and flopping about I mean not to pass judgment but I can't shake the feeling now the wholesome down home Lydia from 40 minutes ago has left us and in her stead stands someone with the vibe of a matriarch who eats hitchhikers Especially when she flips open a Zippo lighter, lights a cigarette, and monologues at me with, I guess, what she's been wanting to say the whole time. Do you think I was going to burn all her junk? Hell, burn the whole place down. That was the idea I had one night when that, that lawsuit had me all spooked. Then one of my petties, she tells me about your book report thing, and I say to myself, I say, that gives me an idea. So how much is this worth to you? The question catches me off guard. It's so shrewd. And it's hard to describe 
but I don't really feel like her guest anymore so much as a hostage. Now I wonder if everything up to this point, the snickerdoodles, the cozy chat, if it had all been a put on, and like a spider to the fly, Lydia had led me straight to the middle of her web of peanut brittle and bake cells. And like homemade Applehead dolls that looked like Uncle Sam. Well, I was under the impression it was mine for the taking. Is, 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 is that not the case? <laughs> You're funny. You're real funny. See, I did a little research of my own. You're not so squeaky clean yourself, Mr. Cervantes. Okay, listeners, look. By now, you heard the rumors about me and my so-called untrustworthiness. That suggests I have an unsavory past. What Lydia is referring to is the very old college newspaper article from Pattersby's alma mater that implied I was the culprit who defaced a bronze bust of him in the school quad by welding on a pair of buck teeth made from copper ingots about the size of domino pieces as well as a pair of foolishly angled eyebrows made of skinnier ingots. And before you say anything, yes, I'm aware of this running eyebrow theme going on. I don't know why that is. And no, this was never brought to trial anywhere but the court of public opinion. So believe what you want, I guess. If anything, this moment makes me feel bad for Lydia. Bad because if she's researched me, then she already sees the writing on the wall about how her favorite author and... Maybe her messiah is a fraud. A fraud, and I don't use this term lightly, a phony baloney. Her fool's paradise is crumbling right before her very eyes, and I'm the crumbler. A bribe? Really, Lydia? Or what, you're gonna burn all this stuff I want unless I do what you say or give you money or give you my eyebrows? Because I'll have you know, when I was doing research for Pattersby's novella Squatter's Rights, I learned a lot of building code. And let's just say I think Judge McGillicuddy would be very interested about what I've seen here today. She says nothing, reaches around, twisting at her sturdy, bitty torso, revealing I think a Daffy Duck tattoo, and pulls something tucked in the rear of her teal-colored sweatpants. And I think, oh great, what's she got now? A ceremonial Dutch gutting knife or something? But instead, and I don't know why I never noticed this hidden under her baggy top, she pulls out a stack of papers. About three, four inches thick papers filled with words. I glance once more at Little Miss Kaleidoscope personality and see her studying me, waiting for me to read what she's handed me. I proceed with caution. Easy, Lydia. We're all friends here. What is this? A little something I wrote. Well, it looks like a lot of something you wrote, Lydia. I mean, shit, man. This is a book. We got... It's got to be at least 500 pages here. Which is to say she's handed me something that no one in the biz ever wants to be handed. The novel of an amateur writer. When you find Mr. Pettersby, you'll give this to him. I wrote it and I dedicated it to him. Tell him it's from Sugarbottom. I sniff the pages and they smell like perfume and wood cleaner. I sense Lydia waiting for a reaction. Like I'm the first person she's ever shown these to. I know the feeling. She wants validation. 
And I want to see the light of day again. Lydia, I bet this is great. Gosh, you're a real writer. (laughs) You know, at the beginning when I said I wasn't a liar, I lied. Because now I was being untruthful to Lydia. For her sake, she wasn't a writer. She was a stalker, plain and simple. The most dispiriting kind. One with no gumption. I mean, she hadn't even left her hometown. Rather than get it together enough to drive cross country, show up outside Luke Pattersby's doorstep, feed sedatives to the guard dogs and or bribe the security staff, Lydia's made the common mistake of turning her obsession inward. It's a bummer, man. As is so often the case, Lydia can't see the bars of her own cage. So blinded by an obsession of her own design, trapped in a prison, also of her own design. The prison of fandom, where she is both warden and inmate. And the cook, probably. I want to convey all this to her, but you see, I'm also not an idiot, so... I say exactly and whatever I need to say to save my bacon and get the hell out of Dodge. Of course I'll pass your book on to Pattersby, Lydia. I'm sure Mr. P will be thrilled to read it. You really think so? No. I know so. And with that harmless white lie, I take her pages. She kicks a few snakes in the face and hands over the garbage bags of Fiona Caruso intel. I shimmy on back up to the world of the living, leaving Lydia and Jeremy and Liam Neeson to wallow away in their sinking ship of nightmares and count myself a lucky, lucky man. I gotta say, Lydia's manuscript wasn't bad. Derivative, but you couldn't say it was uninspired. Basically an erotic thriller set against the backdrop of Y2K. I drop it in the first trash can I find. Sorry, Lydia. As the weight of her pages leave my hands, I remember that same feeling of holding my own pages in my own hands back when I was a young go-getter. Of holding a whole world made of ink, stuck together by dream glue. You might say I'm being too harsh, but I'm not. I'm sparing Lydia the pain of rejection. Also, I'm a little pissed that I think she almost killed me. A memory I'll happily leave in the past. Nostalgia being the worst poison, just after strychnine, I elect to dump yesteryear, along with Lydia's psychosexual opus in a bin outside a pharmacy. We're inside, a man with snow white hair stares at me, and I swear his eyes are the color of blood. Peanut brittle sucks! I feel like shouting, but I don't. I just nod at the man and his mustache and smile politely. Okay, listeners, as promised earlier, the moment we have all been waiting for is here. It's time to listen to the voicemail I got from my estranged lit agent and manager, Jay Jordan St. Avalon, which no doubt promises to be exciting career news. Okay. I'm accessing my voicemail. You have one new voicemail. <laughs> oh, man, I'm so nervous. My fingers are shaking. And... Oh, here it comes. All right, this is a swap meet, pal, not Sotheby's. So take my 30 bucks and give me that seven by nine foot oil painting of Mario Andretti hosing down his race car in heaven. Comprende? Hmm. 
didn't seem intended for me. Almost like it was recorded on accident. But people in the biz are always using new lingo. So, well, let's play it again. This is a swap meet, pal, not Sotheby's. So take my 30 meat. bucks and give me that 7 by 9 foot oil painting of Mario Andretti posing down his race car in heaven. Compren Am I missing something? I don't even think Mario Andretti is dead. All right, this is a nope, swap nope. meet, pal. Stop. Not <laughs> Finger slipped. Hands are so sweaty from the excitement. Well, JJ's probably just playing phone games. You know, I'm busy too, sifting through all this junk on this lady Fiona I got, which I have taken a sneak peek at, and friends, I promise this next lead is a doozy. One that, by my estimation, will crack this whole case wide open. I promise. <laughs> Next time on Finding Pattersby, we travel back in time to the heyday of the thriller industry, 1990s Seattle. Finding Pattersby is written and directed by Ryan Sandoval, with music and sound design by Eric Jorgensen. This episode featured performances by Ivka Berkler, John Cannon, and Dan Gagliardi. Check out PattersPod.com and follow us on Twitter at PattersPod for updates, announcements, and all kinds of other neat stuff. You can also check us out on Apollo Plus, where you'll find early release bonus content. Until next time, see you in the Thriller Pages. Did you ever wonder why we don't sit down more on Saturday? <laughs>